Let's join together for prayer once again. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word, for your will, your will revealed in your word. Thank you for the important lessons that we'll be reminded of even this morning. Thank you for Matthew's gospel. Thank you for the recorded words we have of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he speaks truth into our lives. Help us to be attentive. Help us to be obedient. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's an interesting question to start message this morning. Want to be a part of Jesus' family? We've got some things going on here about family and belonging and relationship. As we study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he's often misidentified. There are those who think Jesus is somebody other than he really is. Some people think he's one thing, others think he's something else. Some get it, but most don't. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the words in Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's good that somebody gets it right. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A lot of mistaken identity that goes on, but sooner or later there are those who realize who Jesus really is. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to do a fast forward through John 7, some of the verses there that indicate, again, cases of mistaken identity. There are many conjectures when we ask the question, who is Jesus at that particular time? You look at verse 1, John 7. Jesus is someone to be killed, according to the viewpoint of some. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in, about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. They wanted to rid the earth of the Lord Jesus. If you look at verses 2 through 5, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, and this is talking about his family, his, his brothers, and we'll see a little bit about them later on. They said to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now that sounds like maybe they're on his side, but the next verse tells us that those words that they just spoke were coming out of unbelief. For they, for, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so they were being sarcastic. They were telling Jesus to do something in derision. They didn't believe in him even at that particular point. If you look further into verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. So in the same verse, a good man or a deceiver. Uh, and people constantly trying to figure out who is Jesus. If you look at verse 15, something unexpected to them. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Unexpectedly amazing teacher before them. In verse 20, however, you glance at verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon. Uh, that's certainly uh, one reaction that they had, and this is not the first time we've seen that. Verses 25 through 27 present Jesus as an enigma to the people. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. If they read their scriptures, they would have known where he had come from, but they they didn't know the scriptures. In verse 31, they see Jesus as a miracle worker. In verse 40, they wonder, is he the prophet? That's the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, a prophet like Moses who was to come. But thankfully, in verse 41, it says, others said, this is the Christ. But even then, they got arguments. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said he comes from the offspring of David? So we've got a situation where there is a lot of mistaken identity going on with regard to the Lord Jesus. People refuse to believe the evidence that Jesus was the Christ. But thank the Lord that some people did get it. Most of them did not. Some were puzzled. But some would turn from hardened unbelievers to believers, from doubters to those with faith. And among them were people from Jesus' own literal family. And what a great thing to see his own brothers and sisters and parents coming to the knowledge of who Jesus really was and not all at the same time. We see recorded before us Jesus' immediate family. We understand a little bit from other scriptures, comparing scripture, who that family involved. Just the next chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, the people again are asking, is not this the carpenter's son? Okay, so that brings Joseph into the picture. Is not his mother called Mary? Of course, that brings Mary into the picture. And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and John? Now, if we look at Mark 6, 3, I won't ask you to turn to that. It adds, and are not his sisters here with us? And then it says, and the people took offense at him. They took offense at him because there he was in their midst. He was a carpenter's son, and now he's trying to pass himself off as being the son of God or the son of man, as Jesus would like to say. Here's an interesting study note from the ESV Bible from that verse that I just quoted from Matthew 13, verse 55. His brothers and his sisters refers to other children born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. Some interpreters seeking to defend a doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary have suggested that these were cousins or children of Joseph from another marriage. But no evidence in the Greek words adelphoi, which means brothers, or adelphia, which means sisters, no evidence in those words or in any other historical information gives support to that view. And I don't usually like to take what other people believe and say, well, they're wrong. I like to stress the truth of what the Bible teaches, but there are many who have been brought up with the idea uh, that we just mentioned before, this perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, It cannot be, if we take the Scriptures in their normal sense, Jesus had brothers and sisters, and Joseph and Mary were a part of that. But, of course, Mary uh, conceived by the Holy... the, The birth of Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. So we have... Uh, other scripture in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
But note these words, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, which clearly indicates after that there were sexual relations and the product of that were other children. Well, let's look at a little family history, a little family history of Jesus' family. At first, his family was very skeptical about him. We read in John 1 just a few moments ago, and we read his brothers did not believe on him. They were being sarcastic. They were deriding him and perhaps even trying to lead him into some trouble or danger. Actually, they thought Jesus was crazy. If you look at the verses on the screen or listen as I read Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, where it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Not off to a good start with his own family. They thought he was crazy. Jesus made it clear that he was not honored among his family members because it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, that Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. So that's Mark chapter 6 and verse 4. But later, after the resurrection, they were believers. And that's one of those things that gives great evidence for us that the people around Jesus, his apostles, his own family, the resurrection triggered the thoughts that went both backwards and present and forward into the future, recognizing this is the person of the Lord Jesus himself. It tells us in Acts chapter 114, all these, talking about 120 disciples now of Jesus, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We saw four brothers named Among them were James and Jude, both of whom wrote books in the New Testament. So we can see that there was a huge change in these individuals. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Do we not have the right, the Apostle Paul asked, to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Every indication is that these brothers, these real brothers of the Lord Jesus were involved in the ministry after the resurrection. In Galatians 1.19, Paul says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So as we look at this family history, if you'll turn with me to Acts 15, something very, very interesting is going on. Acts chapter 15 James, the Lord's brother, was already named as an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. But when we get to Acts 15, this is the chapter that describes the Jerusalem council. This is a controversy that was going on at that particular time. Some of the Jewish people wanted believers to have to be, become Jews, really, to become believers in Christ and go through all the, uh, the rites and rituals of being a Jew. They gathered together in chapter 15, for a council to discuss this. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you look at verse 2, then Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, and there was a debate. They went off to Jerusalem to have this settled. You'll notice the apostles and the elders were involved in this in verse 2. If we look at verse 6, we can see the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. Much debate. Then we see in verse 7 that Peter actually stood up. We see in verse 12 that all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Saul. And then in verse 13, after all of this discussion, including some very heavyweights, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And that this is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. He quotes from Old Testament Scripture. And he talks about the Gentiles being a part of the prophecies of the Old Testament Scripture. And this is very interesting in verse 19. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, my judgment. He made the decision. He's the one who is now the head of the church, even of the apostles. And so we've got James, the brother of Jesus, having come a long way from being a skeptic, from being an unbeliever. We can see that over and over again. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ did amazing things in the hearts and minds of many people. Indications are that by this time, Joseph had died perhaps many years before. That's why we don't see him getting involved here. That's why Jesus at the cross asked John to take care of his mother. At that point, he couldn't even ask his brothers because they had not yet turned to belief in him. So that's a little family history of Jesus, but there's one that's even more significant than that. If you follow on your outlines, Jesus' extended family that we see in verses 48 through 50. Jesus made the point here that spiritual family is more important than physical family. And so if you're, if you're looking at that, you can see he's replying to the man who told him that his mother and brothers were just outside. They were asking to speak to him. But Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, here are my mother and brothers. This isn't just the apostles. This is, this is a group of disciples who are there. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's Jesus' extended family. Do you know who that includes? And this is really exciting. That includes all of us. We're his extended family. And... Do you see what's happening? We are as important as his physical family. His physical family can wait. He's dealing with those who are part of his extended family. And that continues on and on. Again, verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or, as recorded in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So they're the ones who do the will of God and do the word of God. They're tantamount to each other. God's will recorded in his word for us. And those are Jesus' extended family. Those who want to do his will. Those who want to do what his word teaches us to do. And Jesus makes that very, very clear. But those who want to do that, 
And those who actually do that are part of the extended family of the Lord Jesus. We're close. We're united together in Him and with Him. But we've got to be obedient to His Word and to His will. We've got to listen to God's Word with all we have, and then we've got to be prepared to do it. The story's told of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man that we actually mentioned last Sunday night, a man who was persecuted by the Nazis, ended up being killed uh, right as the, uh, the war was, was running out. And it says that he ran an underground seminary for theological students during those oppressive years in Nazi Germany. He was a very intelligent man who possessed immense critical capabilities. But in his homiletics classes, where he was teaching seminary students how to preach and how to, how to, how to take care of the ministry, um, in his homiletics classes, as he listened to his students preaching, he always set aside his pencil and listened intently with his Bible open before him, no matter how poor the sermon was, as many of you have learned to do. He believed that the preaching of God's Word ought to be attended as if he were listening to the very voice of God. You can see him pictured here on the screen. As if the very voice of God, God's Word was very important, and it didn't matter if somebody was butchering it. He was attentive to the Word as we should be. Kent Hughes, who related that story about Bonhoeffer in his commentary, says that's how he tries to listen also. It's how all of us should listen. Always looking to the text. Always engaged. Always thinking. Always praying. Jesus has called us to be sure we really hear the Word of God. And of course, that's the first step, hearing it, and then actually doing it. It's not even enough to be saturated in God's Word. We've got to be doing what it says. Now, that's not novel. You've heard that before hundreds of times, no doubt. But never at this point in your life where God has an appointment for you to hear it, for me to hear it. Am I actually doing the will of God? I know what He wants me to do. Am I doing it? Have I been doing it today? Or has somebody been the victim of a quick, sharp retort that I've given? Or have I done things, continue to do things, made them habits that there needs to be a house cleaning in my life? Let's turn together to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. These are verses, once again, that you've seen and heard many, many times. But for whatever his reasons, God wants us to intersect with these verses here this morning. James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I'm not going to ask how many men here this morning looked intently into the mirror. I don't like to do that. I don't like that guy that's staring back out at me. But let's say you looked into the mirror. Maybe you weren't even looking intently, but you noticed that something was deeply amiss 
and you did nothing about it. That's why you're sitting here looking the way you look right now with blood still coming down where you cut yourself shaving or whatever it may be. But that's not how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to look intently into the law of liberty and hear what God wants us to hear. Somebody has said this, even being a member of Jesus' own earthly family did not merit salvation by virtue of that relationship. Jesus' invitation, therefore, extended to his natural mother and half-brothers because they too needed to be saved from sin. And Mary says that in the Magnificat. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary needed a Savior. Jesus' brothers needed a Savior. All of us are in that same boat. Apart from personal faith, they were no more spiritually related to him than any other human being. All of those and only those who believe in me are spiritually related to me, Jesus was in effect saying. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. But again, notice, whoever does the will, reflecting a belief and a heart that is right for the Lord. Without the doing, then the believing has to be questioned. It's not the doing that saves, it's the doing that reflects that the believing is legitimate. And so it becomes a very important issue how to know the will of God. If it's so important that we do the will of God, we need to know it and make sure that we know it so that we can do it. So let me ask you this. What is the most important question that you can ask about God's will? What is the most important question you can ask about God's will? Probably the most oft answer to that by young and old alike would be this. How can I know the will of God? How can I discover the will of God? And they will say, that's the most important question you can ask about the will of God. I believe that's not correct. I believe the most important question you can ask about the will of God, are you already doing the will of God that you know? Because people are saying, I want to know what God's will is with regard to, should I go to college or should I get a job? Should I marry? Who should I marry? What kind of a job should I have? People want to know God's will with regard to a lot of questions. But the most significant question, are you already doing the will of God that you know? In Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, David said, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I desire to do it because it's there within me and it will work itself out. So here's a test. Could you have written those words that David penned that are on the screen right now? Could you have written that? I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Your word is there. It's spilling out in what I do. To me, the first step in knowing God's will is an honest willingness to do that will. That honest willingness is seen in actually doing it. We also assume that once we find out what God's will is, we will automatically do it. And that's not necessarily true. Knowing God's will and doing it are two different things. You remember Mark Twain's famous quote, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Take Jonah as an example. Did he have a problem knowing what God's will was? He knew exactly what God wanted him to do. And he decided not to do it instead. So until I'm already doing his will that I know, I really don't have a right to ask him for more. 
It's like when I was a teacher in school, if somebody would come up and say, I need extra credit. And I would say, no, you don't. You need to do the work that's assigned to you. When you do all of that, then we'll think about extra credit. It's like the, uh, the young boy who wants to bat cleanup on his team. And he goes up to the coach and says, I'm ready to bat cleanup. It's only a week from Father's Day, so I can do baseball for a little while longer. And the coach says to him, well, um, you know what? I'm not, I'm not thinking you're ready to bat cleanup because you haven't hit a ball even in batting practice all year. Um, work your way up to it. Do some things. Show me what you're doing. By the same token, until I'm already doing something for the Lord, doing His will, I shouldn't be asking Him for more until I do what's there already. In the Scripture, God's given us, using the very words, His will, several things. If we want to do a checklist, a real quick checklist, it's God's will for all of us to be saved. Have you placed your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Not wishing, not willing, some of the translations say, not willing that any would perish. It's the Lord's will that we be sanctified. That means to be holy, set apart. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5 tell us clearly, for this is the will of God. Always have to pay attention when we see those words. Okay, I can't wait to see what's next. God is going to tell me something. I don't have to wonder what His will is. It's clear. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. It doesn't matter what the culture, the world around us tells us today. There are those who are loosening every moral fabric that we have. But it still says it is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's God's will that everybody be saved. It's God's will that we all be sanctified. It's God's will that we be submissive to those authorities that he's placed over us. And there are a number of them in the Scripture. But just to take one example, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. Be subject. Other translations say submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's will is also for us to be steady, to be steady. First Thessalonians five sixteen to 18, rejoice, notice the word always, pray, notice how often without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. That's steadiness. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To be rejoicing, to be praying without ceasing, to be giving thanks in all circumstances. That's steadiness. You'll notice then it's always, without ceasing, in all circumstances, we're to be living the way God wants us to live. And it's His will for us to be Spirit-filled. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So clearly, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's to be Spirit-filled. Further steps in discovering God's will. God's will is always in harmony with His Word. 
Many of life's decisions are made for us because the Bible has already given us clear instruction. If you feel a desire to do something that conflicts with the clear teaching of the Bible, then it's simply not God's will. Should I lie for my boss? No. Should I pad my expense account? No. Should I cheat on my taxes? No. Should I cheat in school? No. Should I get involved in a relationship with someone who is not a growing Christian? No. Should I stay far away from temptation? Yes. God tells us it's clear. Even if God's word does not speak directly to a particular situation, it may give us some general principles or help to lead us to a particular conviction. Here's an illustration in my life. I have never touched a drop of alcohol in my life. Why? Because there's an 11th commandment that says not to? No, but because as I read Scripture, as I put together God's principles, to me it becomes clearly a conviction. I never, ever want to do that. I think God's will is made known in many ways in the Scripture. It may not be a particular situation, but it could be a general one that gives us wisdom to live by. God's will is often made clearer to us as we seek the advice of godly counselors as well. In Exodus, Moses was that type of counselor, but he needed counseling himself. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, and well, they should, but he says, I need some help. And he got some advice from his father-in-law. Acts 20, 27, for I did not shrink, the apostle Paul says, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here was an individual who was helping others to do that. And we're familiar with Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. There's a value in using the church leaders, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your teachers, your spouses, and, you know, sometimes your children can be great bearers of good advice. Prayer is vitally linked to knowing God's will. Romans 8.27 he who searches, the heart, searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You see the connection often between prayer and God's will. First John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Not too long ago, we talked about this in connection. Providential circumstances help us to know God's will. Providential circumstances are God's ordering the normal events of everyday life. And we believe that God cares about every step that we do take. His guidance has been offered to us. Buying a house? Which house? Providential circumstances may come to play there. If you have 14 kids, six cats, two dogs, a father-in-law, several chronic drop-in relatives, you probably don't want to consider a one-bedroom house with a half a bathroom. But on the other hand, you have to buy a house you can afford. Deciding on a job? Maybe the job opening for a secretary is not God's will for you. Why not? They're looking for an accomplished secretary with modern skills. You can manage on the keyboard 12 words an hour before spell checking. Develop a computer virus every time you draw near one. You fervently believe that the minimum time given to any one phone call should be an hour. Providential circumstances say maybe you need to look for another kind of job. Should you marry that girl? 
Maybe it's not God's will if every time you ask her, she alternates between laughing and getting sick. Maybe because she wants to marry somebody else and he's bigger than you are. That's providential circumstances. Why I'm not a professional athlete? Providential circumstances. They wouldn't offer me enough money. No. I wasn't any good. (laughs) But remember this, it's not enough to know God's will or to talk about it. It's doing God's will that counts. I shared this individual. He's one of of my favorites uh, a couple years ago when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. But picture this individual. His name is Alfredo Spaghetti Vermicelli. His address is Rome, Italy. He speaks Italian and he uses his hands a lot. He hates green. Does he sound Irish? I don't think so. What if he claimed to be Irish? Would you tend to believe him? What if someone lived like a child of the devil, did whatever he wanted, spurned the will of God from his word and claimed to be a Christian? Shouldn't he be examining himself to see if he's really in the faith? Matthew seven twenty one. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is all about being part of the family of the Lord Jesus. You want to be part of his family? What does he say? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I can't imagine somebody saying, I don't want to be part of Jesus' family. Well, it does come with a cost. It comes with doing his will, not ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. May that be our prayer as well. Not because this is novel thinking to us, but it's the kind of thinking that sometimes our actions get farther and farther away. We frog and kettle. And if we examine ourselves truly and we look and we say, who's doing the right thing in my life? Is it because I'm doing my will or because I'm doing your will? Which is preeminent? We know which one should be. So help us to that end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.